Marshall Gans, who for close to 60 years has played an instrumental role in progressive movements and major democratic campaigns. He started to develop his approach to organizing while working alongside Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, and later designed the grassroots organizing model that helped propel Barack Obama to his historic victory in 2008. Marshall, it's such a pleasure to have you join us. Thanks. Happy to be here. In the past few years, there have been a number of watershed moments, including Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, and climate strikes. While all of this energy is exciting, it's not clear that these movements have been able to fully translate that into power. You've made the distinction between mobilizing and organizing, and I wonder if we could start there. That's a good start, because there has been a lot more mobilizing than organizing. And the distinction is this, I think. Mobilizing is like mobilizing individuals' resources, people who already agree with you, to show up somewhere or send an email or whatever. You might say it's taking a capital you already have and spending it, but it doesn't generate anything new. And it doesn't generate anything new because it's not rooted in the capacity to absorb anything new. What I mean is that organizing is about bringing people together, making commitments to one another to develop a collective capacity, an organization, a movement in which the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And to do that, you have to bring people into relationship with each other. You have to develop leadership. You have to commit to people's engagement as strategists as well as actors. So that then if you have a mobilization, it's a strategic choice. It's not just a reaction to the moment. And you're equipped to use that mobilization to build your power. What we've seen so much of in recent years is taking advantage of the digital media that we now have to share information with lots of people in reaction to some big event, that motivating thing that happens to do this, do that, show up here, show up there. But there's no new capacity built. There's no real power built that sustains. And so you wind up having lots of these one-shot deals, but then they don't translate into power because they weren't conceived that way in the first place. Zainab Tufeci has a terrific book, Tear Gas and Twitter, where she does a whole study of these mobilizations. And that's the contrast she makes. And one of her arguments is that if you're trying to mobilize in order to influence like a decision maker or whatever, how they see the mobilization or the rally or the march, or whatever it is, depends a whole lot on what they think went into it. The March on Washington, for example, in 63 was evidence of a lot of organized power. Some of the rallies that we've seen more of these days are not evidence of that. They're evidence of a momentary energized public that then may just disappear. I guess mobilizing without organizing doesn't get you very far. Organizing and mobilizing can get you a lot of places. In a recent article, you mentioned the work of feminine sociologist Joe Freeman and her phrase, the tyranny of structurelessness. Can you talk about that for a minute? It's interesting because culturally, I think, when you say structure, people want to run the other way. It's like, oh, that's going to be a constraint on my autonomy. The highest good that I have is my autonomy. And the sort of radical individualism that is a result of both political marketing and economic marketing, well, let me put it this way, structure 
at its most basic is simply a commitment that we make to each other that we're going to coordinate our work in some way. We're going to meet once a week, or we're going to use these criteria, or we're going to end on this time. They're just agreements we share so as to create continuity in our work, our relationship. That's all structure is. And so the first problem is that it has a bad rap to begin with. And it's in this culture that feels like, I don't want that, I don't want that. In part, that's a reaction to experiences of oppressive structure. So if you've been in a situation in which like it's a top-down deal where you're structurally constrained, say, I want out of that. And so then you go to the opposite extreme, uh-uh, nothing. So there's both a combination of that reaction to oppressive structure and this sort of lifting up of this kind of extreme individualism that's around us that makes structure feel like a problem, not a way of solving anything. So then you get what Joe Freeman calls the tyranny of structurelessness. Her argument was, look, human beings, anytime they get together, they're going to create structure. I mean, they're going to make agreements, but it can either be on the books, transparent and accountable, or it's going to happen off the books, opaque and not accountable. And so, you know, anybody who's ever been in a group that, well, no, we don't want any structure. We don't have any leaders here. Okay, great. And then what happens? Well, somebody's still making decisions. Who's that? Or wait, who decided that? And usually they disintegrate into various forms of factions and antagonisms and fall apart. Not always, but a whole lot, a whole lot of the time. Now, the substitute sometimes for structure is intense personal relationships. So you'll have a movement or an organization start with a core of people who really trust each other. And so they don't need to build structure. Well, as they grow, guess what? The only decision-making authority in the whole organization is that little initial core. And so it winds up being the opposite of what it sets out to be. It winds up being very centralized, very personalistic, and very top-down. And there are organizations around us right now really struggling with this, where they have local groups who sort of want to do their own thing. And then there's a national group of founders and then there's no locus of legitimate decision-making. So structure is also an antidote to nepotism, to personalism, to all that stuff. It's a way to be transparent about how we're going to work together. But it's a problem. It's a big problem, the aversion to it. A lot of them really struggle with it. A lot of them really struggle with it. Because, see, that was the sort of norm Okay, you've got to distinguish, I think, between representative organizations or constituency-based representative organizations and firms, essentially, whether nonprofit firms or for-profit firms, where the authority comes from. And if the authority comes in a firm, the authority comes ultimately from a board, which is a function of ownership, fundamentally. And in nonprofits, it's not that different. I mean, it's a board still. In a union, for example, the authority comes from the members, and then it's delegated upward. It's like the federal structure. It's like a citizen delegates to the city, to the state, to the federal. So the authority source goes from the bottom up. That's the difference between a democratic and a non-democratic organization. And so for many, many years, up until the 60s or so, the typical form of association in the U.S. was the representative form of association. 
and it became dominant on a large scale in the late 19th century when a lot of civic capital was created. And the typical model was a local chapter, a state, and a national, and elected leaders and all that. Well, that kind of came apart in the 60s and 70s, and it's never really been successfully replaced. Unions still operate that way, some much better than others. Some are much more engaged and capable of renewal and some not, you know, but people's daily experience isn't of that much, less and less. And so like my students, they don't know how to have a meeting, okay? Now, what, what does that mean? They didn't take Toastmasters, no. It means that it takes a certain orientation to create a collective. And de Tocqueville, when he's writing in the 1830s, he says the genius of America is associationism. And by association, he means people connecting with other people, learning how their individual interests different from common interests that they may have, developing affective bonds, and learning how to govern themselves. The whole capacity for collective, in this sense, effort, has been eroding seriously. So it goes beyond social capital. It's like self-governance. You know, how many good meetings have you been to? But look, there used to be this thing, and I'm not romanticizing the past, but there was a Civil War general who was active in the YMCA after the end of the Civil War. And all these associations were growing and people, how do we govern ourselves? How do we govern ourselves? And so he came up with a pocket version of a set of rules you could use. And his name was Roberts. And that's where Roberts Rules of Order came from. And the innovation was you could fit it in your pocket because there were a lot of competing forms around. Well, that became kind of a standard thing. And so it wasn't this big puzzle. How do we decide? Nowadays, you tell, well, wait, how are we going to decide? Who's going to make the decisions? Is it going to be consensus? Or are we going to vote? And then what's our commitment to honor decisions that are made that we don't agree with? You know? Oh, you mean, yeah, we made the decision. Well, then I'm walking. Well, then you don't have a collective anymore. You just exit. So I guess what I'm saying in many different ways is that this capacity for collective effort, where you're ready to invest elements of your own agency in creating a collective agency is really very, very much under assault. And so people substitute aggregation for it. Like, let's get a bunch of opinions. No, what, what's missing is people getting with each other and learning and figuring out how to do what they have in common. Instead, it's just aggregate. That's how a lot of market stuff works. It's a, how politics has come to work. Interesting. You talk about these micro practices and how they can turn into macro power. Yeah. And in many ways, this is leading into your thoughts on the breakdown of civil society. Yeah. Well, exactly. You have sort of two assaults. One comes from the economic direction. I mean, markets are fine for certain things. They're fine for figuring out efficiencies based on who's got the resources to command them. But they don't build anything collective. It's not what they're about. And so that's a pretty, can be a pretty efficient way to operate in an economic domain is a market process. But it's all based on exit. You vote by your feet or by your dollars. Now, politics is essentially, or has been traditionally, a collective effort because 
It's about trying to bring people together to find common ground or to articulate their differences in such a way that they can be contested, argued about. That has been disappearing from our politics since the 1970s, when the Supreme Court ruled that speech is money. Now, what it meant was that then we're the only liberal democracy that has no constraints on campaign spending, not on where it comes from, but the spending. Now, what that does is it created an industry that doesn't exist elsewhere of political marketing. It's, I don't know, $15 billion industry now, and it feeds off itself. It's kind of like the more money is spent, the more money they make. And so it puts us in this transformation of what historically has been a collective process into yet another form of marketing. And, you know, it's in the form of sound bites or videos or social media, but it's not bringing people together. It's all about finding the niche that they'll respond to. It's kind of like, oh, this person can be reduced to this issue. So now I'm going to hit on that issue. Human beings aren't issues, though. Human beings are whole human beings. And so it fragments so much more than anything else. And at the same time, it turns it into really just dominated by wealth for the most part. Now, over on the civil society side, then, what's happened is that, that the wealth that's generated so much in the economic side also has generated a whole lot of inequality on the other side. So civil society organizations, movements, all have come to depend on philanthropy in the last 30 years. And it's crazy. But when we were building movements, it wasn't like that. What it means is that there's a shift to where I've got to figure out how to take care of my donors. And I've got to come up with data that can convince my donor that this thing matters. As opposed to building a powerful constituency, a constituency based on people power that can contest the power of wealth. And so it's a big problem. And I talk to a lot of my organizing friends. It's kind of like, well, we got to get a grant, but we got to get a donor. That wasn't the deal, you know. Now, it's interesting, something like Sunrise is interesting because it didn't start that way. It started more out of a real movement being generated by young people, just like March for Our Lives. But March for Our Lives pretty soon got taken over. And Sunrise so far has resisted that. By taking over, I mean, hey, we want to help you. We want to support, but now you need a board. You need this, you need this. Oh, and by the way, oh, we'll give you a couple of seats on the board. Well, it just got co-opted. It just got appropriated. That's a problem in our country, more so than in Western Europe, where the same thing hasn't happened to their politics. Not like here. And the inequality is not as great. So then the question is, where's the spaces in which you can create power that's based on people rather than wealth? What are those spaces? Where are they? And movements are often what can fill those spaces. So to me, that makes things like Sunrise very important, but also very challenging in that they need the structure because there is a lot of energy for change out there. But there's also this problem of, well, another just interesting person, Elizabeth Anderson. Do you know her work? I don't believe so. She's a philosopher at the University of Michigan, and she wrote this really interesting book. Well, 
her work is on freedom and equality. And sort of her argument is that they are interdependent, not contradictory. Because sort of the argument we get is, well, if you're going to have equality, well, then you got to give up liberty. And she's sort of saying, well, maybe if you look at it an individual, but in a society, you can have the liberty of one person dominate everything based on wealth. You don't have much freedom. So if you really look at it in terms of who has the capacity to make choices and act on them, then concentration of wealth, inequality is the opposite of freedom, not just the opposite of equality. Because if it's equality and freedom, that's very different than equality in nominal equality. So she wrote this book called Private Government. And private government is about the fact that most people spend most of their time in what she humorously calls communist dictatorship. Most people spend most of their time in bureaucracies in which they have no say, in which they own no property, and increasingly the firm or the bureaucracy moves out of just work life into private life. And so it's kind of like, where do people experience democracy on a day-to-day -day basis? I go from my job, well, there's my house, but then where do I experience self-governance that actually matters? All this comes back to this thing about micro practices, because how do you have democracy unless people can learn how to do it? And how do you begin to balance concentrations of power with people power unless you can build collective capacity? But the energy's out there. The need is out there. The George Floyd response showed, oh, there's a lot out there. But it's either going to take shape in a form that can really assert power or it's going to dissipate. And to me, that's what this moment is a whole lot about. Because clearly there's an awakening, no question. And the question is, Okay, what do we do with that? We'll see. There's an author that you've referenced, Sidney Verba, or a political scientist who says essentially that liberal democracy is a gamble that the equality of voice can balance the inequality of resources. You referenced the 1976 Supreme Court ruling in Buckley versus Vallejo that said money is speech, and it feels like we just continue to head down that path. Exactly. As I look at how we spend our political capital, it feels like money in politics is one of the absolute most important places. Do you agree with that? And do you see paths towards addressing the current role of money in politics? Well, I think it's important to go to the starting point. Compared to other liberal democracies, we have far less of a functional democracy. And, you know, it has to do with the origins. It has to do with the institutions and how they were negotiated in order to accommodate slave states, basically. We have this thing called the Senate. Now, representative? Mm, not, no way. I mean, even within it, it gives such power to non-representative minorities. It's unbelievable. So Rhode Island, you get two votes. California, you get two votes. What's democratic about that? Anything? I mean, nothing. How do you justify that? At the time, they were trying to make an alliance of small states, big states, and so they were trying to do that. Well, geez, look at now. So now you have these underpopulated red states exercising more power than superpopulated blue states. That's just wrong. And then the rules of the Senate itself make it, unless you have 60, 
then you don't really have any power to do much of anything. It's like a stranglehold. Then there's first by the post districts where, you know, you elect one person per district. So 51% gets you 100% of the representation. 49% gets zero representation. Then there's the districts designed by incumbents. What I'm saying is there are some deep institutional problems to start with that make it even harder to be a genuinely representative democracy. Now you add into that the money thing, and it's pretty understandable why the U.S. has kind of been at such variance with so much of the world, especially in the last 40 years, you know, with the whole neoliberal thing. I mean, it comes from here. So we have a lot to overcome if we are going to get a functional representative democracy. Now, maybe it will take constitutional amendments. Maybe it will take social movements that are able to exercise civil disobedience on a scale that they can't be ignored. Maybe it'll take electing progressive people wherever they can and beginning trying to build enough of a base for that. But that's why movement energy is so valuable and so important, so precious. And to see it sort of dissipate into Occupy Wall Street is so frustrating because it's a protest. Great. Protests are not movements. Protests are not organizing. Protests are protests. So it all kind of comes back together. And I'm not trying to be gloom and doom. I just think we have to accurately see what the deal is so we can then figure out how to deal with this thing and use our energy strategically to do it. Just to comment on your point about the undemocratic institutions within our government, the words that are used, progressive and conservative, if you look at the amount of power you need to amass to have progress versus a system that is set up to conserve, set up by the people who want to conserve exactly. a very unequal and harmful set of norms. I mean, the founders were trying to assure the dominance of local elites, which is what they were. And they weren't so hot on democracy. They were republic. They emulated the Romans, not the Greeks. It's interesting. You see it in the architecture, the design of the sort of 1770s, 80s, 90s is very Roman influenced. You don't get the Greek stuff until about the 1820s or 30s when it becomes much more of a democratic ethos. And you actually see architectural styles change and become more like the Greek model than the Roman model. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's a great observation. So as we talk about this essentially neoliberal attempt to gut power from the government yeah. and to push a market worldview as the dominant worldview, as opposed to one of the tools we have to create the world we'd like, right. how do you overcome a deeply held, deeply entrenched cultural belief? These are very human constructs through our education system, through our media, that we grow up and without some level of critical thinking would assume are the way the world is. Maybe this is a chance to dive into one of the major successes of your work, which is the public narrative. You know, the question you're asking is like, how do you explain radical shifts of any kind? And boy, we should be so conscious of the contingency there is in life. I mean, nobody thought Trump was going to be president. Nobody thought Tucker Square was going to happen. Very few people thought a black man would be elected president. In other words, 
we're living in a time in which the power of contingency plays out again and again and again. Now, that can be scary, but it can also be hopeful because it means that as fixed as things seem to be, they aren't that fixed. And COVID is a great example. I mean, that's what change feels like. It's disconcerting and it can be uncomfortable, but boy, it can be creative. It can be resilient. It can be adaptive. In a certain sense, COVID is kind of like, oh, if we really want to deal with climate change, it's more like that than it is like getting your local city council person elected. So we are capable. We're capable of dealing with change. But it's also a lot harder for us to initiate it. It's almost like sometimes it takes an external shock and then it opens things up and people say, whoa, wait a second. I think the market crisis in 2008 had the potential for that because it really shook up the basics of the whole economic system. That was a crucial moment when Obama went one direction, when I think a different direction was possible, was absolutely possible and supportable then to manage capital in a different way. Well, that was missed. Trump is another kind of shock and throws a lot of things into play along with COVID. That's why kind of right now it feels like there's a lot more fluidity in things. I mean, you have a progressive perspective in the Democrats that just hadn't been there for a long time. You actually have a critique of capital, which is kind of like, whoa. There's a generational shift that's going on. The flaws of the system became so clear during COVID. I mean, one of my colleagues is running for governor here in Massachusetts, Danielle Allen, and part of her whole deal is, look what happened with housing. In other words, you know the story of the miner's canary. Canary in the coal mine? Canary in the coal mine, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so if you looked at COVID and you looked at where the hurt was, it's in the most vulnerable people. Vulnerable in terms of health, vulnerable in terms of economy, vulnerable in terms of housing, in terms of rate, you name it. And it was just all in great relief there. On the other hand, the wealthy did pretty well. So are the tools there? Is the time? Because you got to be doing something about organizing people. You got to do something about changing the narrative. You got to figure out how to do different strategy and how to create enough of a structure. So I just see lots of possibility and lots of agency possible right now. Now to predict, so since you can't predict everything, what you can do is do as much groundwork as you can so as to be prepared, so to speak. Does that make sense? I, because it's not just like a cost-benefit analysis that we're talking about. It's a fundamental value shift. And value shifts don't happen just because somebody makes an argument. They have to do with thinking about oneself differently, about one's community differently, and about the world that we confront differently. Now, that's where narrative is, because narrative is a way of understanding and articulating what we care for, what we care about, what our sources of hope are, what our sources of hurt are as individuals, but also as communities and also as nations. Because what stories teach is what is of value. And they teach what is of value in moments in which there is a disruptive 
challenge or threat. That's what a plot is. A plot is just that. It's somebody going along and then something crazy happens and then they've got to deal with it and then there's an outcome. Now that basic plot structure, we're not interested until that happens. And it provokes our interest because we're infinitely curious to learn how to deal with the unexpected that for which we're not prepared in our daily lives. It's like a marriage breaks up. We lose a loved one. So the subject of narrative is how to deal with disruption and how to find the moral or emotional resources to do so. And because we can identify with the protagonist in a story, we feel it. We don't just understand it with the head, we feel it in the heart. Because narrative is fundamentally a form of emotional language and emotional communication, and values are fundamentally about emotion. So when movements come along, they do that work. I got introduced to organizing in Mississippi in summer projects, and I'm so grateful for it because people were refashioning understandings of themselves as I am somebody. Yes, I can find the courage. Yes, I merit this. And then that was playing out on a communal level. I'm talking about the black community. And then that began to create the power to transform the institutional. That's kind of like the story formulation of a new story for me, a new story for us. And now this moment is a story making moment because we've got a chance to act and really change things and it's urgent that we do so. So narrative plays a crucial role in this thing, but it's not the only role. You also gotta build power and you also gotta have some structure. So when we came out of the farm workers, I always thought you had to have a story, strategy and structure. You had to have why are you doing what you're doing? How are you doing it? And how are you organizing yourself to do it? It's interesting just to reflect on the progression in Black Lives Matter, which has been a restoring. It's been a restoring of American history. There was a big shock to the system, a double whammy. So it provokes sort of a revaluing. And the revaluing is what can help move things in a different direction. I think that's kind of a lot of what's potentially going on right now. Yep. The way young people feel about climate. I mean, it's, it's like a religious thing. Now, a lot of people of my generation don't get it. You know, hey, it's their futures. It's like the givens are not given. So there's a tremendous potential for real change there, I think. Yeah. Climate in particular, we have so many serious issues to address right now across the board. I think the challenge with climate is you have the latent potential for serious damage that you don't see until it's potentially too late. So understanding how do you organize around something that is in the future as opposed to reaction to something that's very visceral and visible. If you look at Black Lives Matter, the visual evidence of the murder of Black people in the U.S. has been a catalyst for civil rights progress. Yeah. Along with hope. Along with hope. Hope not as flowers in May, but hope as Maimonides' hope. Belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. Yep. Hope as more a sense of possibility. Yep. Yep. So I think the question is, in all of these, how do you tap into whatever it is that triggers that shift in the story? I'm personally curious to see where and how that continues to evolve in the climate movement in particular. I think it's a combination because 
Yeah, because you don't get mobilization without urgency, okay? Urgency is crucial, experienced urgency. Now, you can respond to urgency in a very short-term way, or you can see the urgency as creating the opportunity for real depth and really tackling some of the structural problems. I use the example of Montgomery bus boycott, where the bus issue was a big issue and segregation is a really painful thing. But the initial idea was a lawsuit because that was Brown v. Board of Education. Now, lawsuit might have won, maybe didn't. The movement came because of the boycott. And they stumbled into that. And then they, oh, wait, this is a whole different deal. And so then it, oh, ordinary people can create power. Oh, it doesn't just depend on the lawyers. So out of that comes a whole stream of activity that really nobody predicted because it was a process of discovery and emergence. On climate, though, the challenge has been to make the important urgent, right? That's always a challenge. How do you make the important urgent? So then in a movement, how do you create urgency if the urgency isn't evident? Well, actually, the civil rights movement did quite a bit of that by creating moral crises, Selma march. In other words, they were using mobilization to create a kind of urgency. And if you listen to the March on Washington speech, Dr. King's speech, you'll see that's what it's all about. It's all about freedom now. Because the experience of black Americans is very distant from the experience of most white Americans. And I think media played an important role. I mean, I think showing the police dogs and all that, I think was very important. I think one thing that's changed in climate is that young people are hope. They are the future. And like Mothers Out Front organization here in Massachusetts, moms, grandmothers, and so forth. But they're all about climate. Well, why? Well, because they're kids. It's a mom's movement. It's not just a kid's movement. You know, you want future for your children? Well, better look at this. The environmental justice stuff, it's not abstract. It's right there, right now. And so there are the elements to create the kind of urgency. Is it going to be enough? Who knows? Maybe the next hurricane or the next earthquake or... I think that conversation of important versus urgent is really vital. And in many ways, I see the progressive movement getting lost in things that are urgent, but not necessarily as important. Amen. Amen. We organized the thing here at the Kennedy School a few weeks ago, getting together 70 practitioners and academics to try to do something to get at that, which was, if you think that you don't have democracy unless there are certain essentials. You know, do you have a democracy if there's not vote equality? Probably not. And then, okay, now let's take a look at what we're dealing with now. And most everybody's caught up in the urgent things. So now, is there a way we can respond to urgency deeply so as to recognize the importance of what we're doing now for the future? It's a strategic challenge because you need a venue in which there is that perspective. You're trying to put the pieces together. Yeah. So bus boycott, doing a boycott rather than a lawsuit, they created power, they developed leadership, and they used the urgency to build a base for the future. Did they consciously do? No, that may have not been the intent, but that's what happened. And so it's how do we use these urgent challenges to create 
greater depth so that we can actually get to where we need to get to. That's strategic stuff. The Democratic Party has tried to build a larger and larger umbrella, which is really important because it's representing a wide and diverse group of interests and individuals. And it's sometimes hard to let go of like, this is a thing I want to happen right now that I'm urgently interested in to say, you know what, if we all collectively focus on building power, then we have power that we can use to address all of the things that are urgent. And to get that mind shift is challenging. It is indeed, because you need venues in which to do that work. It's like when we form teams in this year's organizing class, it's like a laboratory experiment, but it's kind of like you could say, we're going to form teams, okay, based on issues. Yeah. And then what you wind up is getting a collection of people who are defining themselves by one sliver of themselves. It's not too surprising that they may be fragile. It's not surprising they're going to remain small. It's not too surprising they're going to lose their creativity because what they've done is take this one variable and make that the point, that a definition of their identity for purpose of this. Now, you can go at it a different way, which is to do the work with other people to discern common values. Values are much broader. In other words, if you organize around a purpose as opposed to a strategic objective, it goes broader, it goes deeper. Let's say, well, we share this value of a uh, sustainable world. And why do we care about that? Well, we have different experiences that us care about that. Okay, good. So now, how do we act on that? Well, there's going to be 33 strategies. Now, the question is, do we have enough coherence and enough structure to be able to look at those strategies and say, hmm, we can build our power best by focusing over here on this. And so then we have the unity we need in order to do that. But they become strategic choices rather than identity choices. See, the definitions by issue, it turns everything into an identity group. So issues fragment like crazy. Yep. So an effective political party would do this work. I got to spend enough time in Canada that I got to see at least an alternative parliamentary system, a labor party, enough the same that the differences are interesting. And I really was interested in the New Democratic Party because the unions and the liberals, and they were all thrown together, but they had to come up with a common leader. They had to come up with a common policy because it's parliamentary. And so there was much more pressure to internally negotiate, find common ground, not compromise, not lowest common denominator, but find common ground so as to be able to be more strategic. We don't have anything that does that. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Marshall Gantz. We'll pick it up with part two in the next installment of Rehuman. 